Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, good morning. My name is Alex McNeely. I'm a pastor here at Clearnote. I'm particularly the pastor of our campus ministry, which is just launching into high gear over the next couple of weeks leading into the new fall semester. Uh, but it's my joy to get to preach to you this morning, um, especially in the absence of some of our other pastors. Uh, so we've been going through the book of Romans, a preaching series on Romans, um, which the first chapters of that are all about not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ um, and really what that means. And I thought it would be useful to open up a passage that uh, reviews the basic facts of what the gospel is, to remind ourselves of who Jesus Christ is and what He has come to do. Um, to strengthen our understanding of Romans and to encourage us in the work of taking that gospel to the world. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, but as a little introduction, uh, I want to talk about uh, one of the hymns uh, that is one of my family's favorite hymns to sing, especially at bedtime, which is, It Is Well With My Soul, um, or as the kids call it, When Peace Like a River, because those are the first few words. Um, and this is one of our favorite hymns. It was written by a man named Horatio Spafford. Some of you might know this story, some of you might not. Um, it's always helpful for me to remember it, but the words to the hymn were written uh, by Horatio Spafford. He was a 19th century lawyer in Chicago, um, and he was a Presbyterian church elder. He was a supporter and close friend of evangelist uh, D.L. Moody. If you're familiar with Moody, he was an evangelist in the late 19th century and uh, based in Chicago. Um, but in 1861, uh, Horatio Spafford, mar Spafford married his Norwegian-born wife, Anna. And they started their marriage, the first 10 years of their marriage, by having lots of children. They had five children. They had uh, two daughters and then a son and then two more daughters. Um, in 1873, two years after losing their son to scarlet fever at the tender age of four, the Spaffords planned a vacation to England. Horatio was detained with business in Chicago, but he went ahead and send, sent Anna and his four daughters ahead um, on a French steamship called the Ville du Havre. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the Ville du Havre was struck by another vessel and sank in 12 minutes killing most of the ship's crew and passengers, including all four of the Spafford's daughters. Eleven-year-old Annie, nine-year-old Maggie, five-year-old Bessie, and two-year-old Tanetta were all killed in that shipwreck. Anna, Horatio's wife, was rescued unconscious, floating on a wood plank. She was transported safely to Wales and was able to telegraph her husband from there to break the news that they were now childless. Horatio immediately left to bring her home, and it was on his voyage across the Atlantic to retrieve his wife in the midst of intense grief that Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul. I'm going to read the words of the hymn now that you have the context to understand the heart that this was coming from. This is, uh, it is well. Many of you will know it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. The gospel of Jesus Christ was a lifeline to Horatio Spafford, even in the midst of life's stormiest grief and sadness. I'm preaching to you a passage from near the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to open up there. Uh, We're going to look at the first uh, eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15, and it'll also be up on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along there. But this is a passage where after dealing with a lot of issues in the church of Corinth, the Apostle Paul is now reminding them of what the gospel is, and this is what he says. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren... The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the word of the Lord. So first, before Paul actually gets to summarizing what the gospel is, he talks about and reiterates the importance of the gospel by way of introduction. If I had to put it in slightly different words, here's what the Apostle Paul is saying and writing. He's saying, now, I'm about to remind you of what the gospel is. It's the same gospel that I preached to you before when I was actually with you. It's the gospel which you received that you're standing in right now, and it's the gospel that saves you. You did receive the gospel, right? You are continuing to stand in the gospel, aren't you? Now notice how central and preeminent the gospel of Jesus Christ is to the life of a Christian. Paul is writing to Christians, which by definition, these are people who have believed, they have received the gospel. And yet it's necessary now for him to make it known to them. It's not because it was a new revelation or something they hadn't heard, but they needed to be reminded of it. But why was it that Paul felt it was necessary to remind the Corinthian Christians of the gospel? Well, if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that there were some pretty gnarly things going on in the Corinthian church. There were divisions within the church. Many of them, at the beginning of the letter, there were divisions um, based on, between people based on who their favorite preachers and their favorite teachers were. So some would say, I am of Paul, or some would say, I am of Apollos, he's my favorite, my favorite teacher, I like his style. Or some would say, I am of John Piper, or I am of Tim Keller, or I am of Tim Bailey, or Stephen Baker, or Alex McNeely, 
That's my favorite. <laughs> um, and so they were divided even in spiritual things. They were engaged in civil lawsuits against one another, the Corinthian Christians, without ever even seeking help from Christians, Christian brothers and sisters to resolve their disputes between each other. They went straight to civil courts to get their pound of flesh from each other. And this divided spirit made it even into their worship services and their celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate today. Um, for example, the rich would get drunk and fill their bellies while the poor would go hungry. So even in the meal that was supposed to represent their unity, they were divided. One of the only things the church had unity about was in not disciplining a man in their midst who was living in open sexual sin. They were agreed on that one or on the same page that they shouldn't do anything about that. In other words, the Corinthians were not living in accordance with the gospel in many ways. They were not bearing the fruit that they should bear that those who know and love Jesus Christ ought to bear. So what does the Apostle Paul do in order to correct this situation? Well, he does a few important things. One, he does rebuke them in this letter. He tells them what they are doing wrong. He gives them practical instruction in godly living and tells them what it looks like, what they should be living like. And then to close up the letter here in 1 Corinthians 15, he reminds them of the gospel. And this is something that the apostles were having to do frequently. This wasn't just a special circumstance that this was necessary in this place for Paul to remind them of the gospel. The apostles were always doing this. Uh, Peter, for instance, says at the beginning of 2 Peter, he's encouraging the Christians to grow in moral excellence, to grow in knowledge, in self-control, in perseverance, in godliness, in brotherly kindness and love. And he says if there's anyone who's not growing in these things, in love, in brotherly kindness, in moral excellence, there's a problem. And the problem at the root of your lack of growth in those things is that you've forgotten your purification from former sins. That's where Peter ties the problem to, is that when we forget our purification from our former sins, we fail to bear the fruit of the gospel. And so as Christians, we never get to graduate from the gospel. It's not something that we believe in time past and then we sort of move past it and don't have to think about the gospel anymore. It's something that is an ongoing reality in the life of a Christian. And the Apostle Paul uses two pictures to communicate this reality to the Corinthian Christians and to us. And these are the two things. He tells them, one, that they are to stand in the gospel. He says, it's the gospel in which you stand. And then he tells them that they are to hold fast the gospel. He says, it's the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast the gospel. And so I want to first open up those two things that Paul points to, or those two illustrations. First, he says that it's the gospel that they're standing in. Not only did the Corinthians, past tense, receive the gospel and believe it, but Paul is telling them that they also, present tense, stand in the gospel, as in they were continuing to stand in it. And this standing in the gospel is an ongoing, continuous reality for the Christian. I want you to imagine the gospel of Jesus Christ as a boat or a ship that carries you safely out on the ocean 
from one shore across stormy seas to the far shore. As long as you are standing in the boat, you are safe. The wind and the waves and the storms may come, but God promises you in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you will make it safely from one shore to the other shore. The Ville du Havre could not guarantee the safety of Horatio Spafford's family from New York to, New- to England. After all, no man-made ship is 100% seaworthy, as history has proved to us over and over and over again. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is sound and reliable. It comes with a guarantee from the Lord of heaven, who is full of power and grace, that you will be kept safe until the day that you die. If you put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought on board and for the entirety of your voyage, you stand securely in the gospel. It is the only way to survive. If you do not believe the gospel, you are lost at sea. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you may forget that you're on a ship. It may not always feel like you're safe, especially in the midst of a great storm. You may even begin to behave as if you're not safe and not really on a ship and as if you're lost at sea. You may get seasick because of what's going on around you. And so you'll need to be reminded that you're on a boat, that it is in the gospel that you stand so that you can behave appropriately. The the Apostle Paul says that it's in the gospel that we stand. The other image the Apostle uh, gives us of our relationship to the gospel is that of holding fast, of grabbing onto something and not letting go. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Anna Spafford, Horatio's wife, was rescued unconscious and floating on a plank of wood. Without that plank of wood, she was dead in the water right? Without the preaching of the Word of God, you are dead in the water. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. It is your lifesaver, your salvation. It is the gospel by which you are saved from the waves. Unless you hold fast and grab on and put your trust in the message of the gospel, you will not be saved. The Apostle Paul says all of those things by way of introducing his summary of the gospel, which is a delivery of something that he received. He says, for I delivered to you what I also received. And the gospel is a message that gets passed along. It's a message that is from God originally, and it is passed on from person to person through testimony, from generation to generation. The Apostle Paul didn't invent the gospel. It was delivered to him, given to him, handed over to him, and he did the same to others. He delivered it to the Corinthians when he personally traveled there himself, and he made it known to them again when he wrote this letter to them. And he didn't change it up. He didn't change the details. He didn't change his tune about what the gospel was. He delivered the same historical and spiritual truths each time he made known the gospel. And we have that same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. We have that same gospel that the Apostles John and Peter and James preached. 
Now, normally with news, the message can get distorted, right? When it passes from person to person to person, and over time, that message can get messed up. If you played the game telephone, or if you've ever had any one of your children come and say, you know, so-and-so said that he saw this happen at school, you know, and I heard this from him, and you know, I don't really know if that's true. <laughs> right? Usually the further you are in time and location from the thing that happened, the less reliable the news is, right? Well, that is not the case with the gospel. And there's a reason. It's because the G- Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of the gospel, has a vested interest in the good news of the gospel getting faithfully passed along without corruption. And we have Christ's assurance that our distance in time and location from the events of the gospel is not a detriment to our accepting it. One place we see this in Scripture is John 17. This is at the very end of his life when Jesus uh, is with his disciples on his last night before his crucifixion. He prays to his Father in heaven, and he prays that God would sanctify his disciples and set them apart. He prays that God would unify them and glorify them, and that the Father would be with them powerfully as those disciples go out into the world with the message of the gospel. But Jesus goes beyond just praying for those men who are there with with him. He actually prays for us. This is John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays and he says, praying to his Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning these men sitting right here, the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for you in John 17. He says, those who believe me, believe through their word. That's you. And it wasn't a surprise to Jesus that the message would go on for 2,000 years. And he had you in mind as members of his church. The world will say that believing a message that's 2,000 years old is foolish, right? But this message, the message of the gospel, has withstood the test of 2,000 years. It has faithfully been passed along from generation to generation. And Jesus cares not just for Peter and James and John, but for all who have believed the gospel through the testimony of Peter and James and John and Paul and many others since them. And so Paul is delivering something that he has received to the Corinthian Christians and the Holy Spirit is delivering it to us. And he says, as of first importance, so he's, he's about to sum up for us what is most important. Right? These are the things that the Apostle Paul thought it was most necessary to communicate. Okay? He's prefacing it with, this is what is of most importance. And what is it that he says? Well, it's the simple, objective truths of the gospel, of what Jesus Christ came and did on the earth. So it's four things here in this passage. It's one, that Christ died for our sins, Two, that he was buried. 
Three, that he was raised on the third day. And four, that he appeared to his disciples after he had risen from the dead. Those are the things that are of first importance here to the Apostle Paul as summarizing the gospel. Now, before I get to breaking down each of those parts that Paul lays out, I want to say that Paul's summary of the gospel is somewhat surprising to me. And it's surprising for two reasons. One is because it's so simple. There's nothing complicated about this message. It's not sophisticated. They're basic historical truths about who Jesus is and what he did. You don't have to have a big brain to tell people these things. And this fits very much with earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians um, where Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You don't have to be a great debater to deliver the message of the cross. It's really not more complicated than telling someone these realities and then telling them to get on the boat so that they can be saved from the wrath to come as you have been. Those things that are as of first importance to the Apostle Paul are quite simple. And the other aspect, which is very similar, but just I was struck, I feel like I've just been discovering this particular passage in the past couple of years of my life, but it's objective. The heart of the gospel is the objective historical realities of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Let's take a look at what Paul lines out as the gospel, this death, burial, and resurrection. So first of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, starting in uh, verse 3 here. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's what the gospel starts with. It starts with Christ died for our sins. Now, for you personally, that means that the gospel must start with Christ died for your sins. And so the first question to you out of this passage is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Do you believe it to be true for yourself? Are you willing to acknowledge that reality, not just that Christ died for sinners in general, or sin in some abstract sense, but for your actual particular sins, He died for your sins? Are you willing to let Christ bear the weight of of your sins and take them to the cross and confess them. So first is an inward reality of you asking, do I believe that Christ died for my sins? You see, even as, as in the way the words that the Apostle Paul uses, Christ died for our sins, he's including himself personally in the work that Christ did. And so the first is to ask the question, do you believe that to be true for you? And second, Will you confess that to be true? Will you confess to others around you that Christ died for your sins? Will you open up with your story, with where you feel pain and with where you've hurt others and been hurt by others? 
Will you name the reality of sin, not just in some abstract way, but will you name its presence in your own life with particularity? Naming your sin, confessing your sin is one of the most evangelistic things that you can do. Imagine, what if you said to your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, your classmate, your family member, your brother, your mother, imagine saying, I came to God as a liar, as an adulterer, as a fornicator. I came to Him greedy. I came to Him impure and vile, and God forgave the guilt of my sin. Are you willing to confess that and be evangelistic with your confession of sin? Third, will you believe this reality to be true for someone else? Will you believe that Christ really does love sinners and that He calls sinners to Himself to be forgiven? Will you believe that there's no sinner too dirty for the kindness and mercy of God? In some sense, you have to believe that to be true for your neighbor even before your neighbor does. In order for you to tell that and communicate that to someone else, you have to believe that it could be true for them as well, that Christ didn't just die for your sins, but for the sins of the world. And so that's the first important reality of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Next is the reality that He was buried. And we talk a lot about Christ dying. We talk a lot about Christ being raised from the dead. But sometimes I think we gloss over the burial. Why is the burial so significant? Why is that a central part of the gospel according to the Apostle Paul that He was buried? Well, I can think of two reasons at least why Christ's burial is significant. One is because it shows that He really was dead. There was no doubt about it. This wasn't like, if you've read Acts chapter 20, this wasn't like where Eutychus falls out of the window and hits the ground and it says that he was taken up dead and the Apostle Paul immediately goes down and he comes back to life. Paul brings him back to life and they go back up and keep preaching. Paul keeps preaching on through the night for a few more hours. You know, if I had been there, I would have been, wait, what just happened? Like, was he actually dead? Did he just get knocked out? Or, what, you know, what's going on there? This wasn't like that. Jesus was buried. He was crucified in view of all. And then he was buried in the ground in view of everyone and in the ground for three days. There was no doubt about this. That's the first reality of the significance of His burial, but the second is that it teaches us that Christ shares with us in even the most humbling and earthly aspects of our existence. He takes on our humanity to the even most disturbing aspects of our humanity. When you go to a funeral, especially to a graveside service, and you see someone lowered into the ground, and you see dirt thrown, and we actually bury someone in the ground. Are you ever disturbed 
thinking about the reality of what is going to happen to that person's body as they decay in the ground and literally return back to dust. It is an unsettling and humbling reality that that is our end, is that we return to the dust when we get put back in the ground and decay. And Jesus went even into the ground, into the ground to be humbled along with us and take on death itself. He was put in the ground. He went all the way to the grave for us. And this teaches us that the gospel is not just some uplifting story that gives a temporary peace and comfort, but it gives strength, peace, and comfort even to the very grave. Because we know that Jesus went all the way into the grave for our sakes. So we can have confidence that we can, He will carry us all the way into the grave. There is no aspect of life, even the most painful and traumatic aspects of life, which Jesus does not understand and sympathize with you in. Because He Himself endured our shame and our suffering so that we might overcome those things through Him. Philippians 2 says, is talking about Christ, and it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So that's the second thing, essential part of the gospel that Christ was buried. And then the third is that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus didn't stay in the ground He doesn't just wallow with us in our shameful suffering. He overcomes it. He conquered and defeated death. And He gives us hope and victory over death, which is what the rest of this chapter goes on to talk about if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about our hope that we too will be raised from the dead just as Christ was. And our hope is in the resurrection because More than anything else, his resurrection testifies that he is who he says he is. God the Father vindicated Christ and his testimony and his message by raising him from the dead. And it's through faith in his resurrection, through standing in his resurrection, through holding fast his resurrection that we are saved. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what we are to put our faith in, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And these things happened according to the Scriptures. You see that Paul says that a couple of times in this list, that these things happened according to the Scriptures. And this should be a comfort and a help to us because it teaches us that the Scriptures are sufficient. Jesus reprimanded the Jews of His time because they failed to believe in Him on the basis of the testimony of the prophet Jonah. Jesus told them, they were asking for a special sign or a special miracle so that he could, they could believe in him and he could really prove he was who he said he was. And he told them, the Old Testament, the prophets should be enough for you to believe in me. If you believed in the scriptures, you would believe in me. And so he rebukes them. 
And yet God in his great kindness did give a sign that was fuller and greater and more authoritative than anything the prophets said or did. He sent his own son to die for our sins and raised him from the dead three days later. If the message of the Old Testament Scriptures was enough for the people of Jesus' day to believe in Him, how much more the message of the New Testament Scriptures for us today? That God has given us more. He's demonstrated His power in a greater and fuller way than, these, than the people of Jesus' time had. And He's confirmed, that didn't just happen, but He confirmed that testimony over and over and over again. Then he appeared to Cephas after he was raised from the dead, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. These verses are such an encouragement to me. Because my faith is weak, and it doesn't take much suggestion from Satan for me to go, wait, did, did Jesus really rise from the dead? That seems crazy. Of course he did. Of course he did. That's what the apostles went around telling people. That's what Paul told the pagan Athenians in Greece, that God had furnished proof of his intent to judge the world through Jesus Christ by doing what? By raising him from the dead. The evidence is there. You don't have to wait for more. You don't have to wait for another sign from God. God has given you enough. He's given us more than enough, actually. Jesus didn't have to show himself to more than 500 brethren at one time, but he did because he really desires that you and many others be saved. And so he made himself known and he made it evident so that all might hear and know. God is not stingy. He has confirmed and added to the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. He has made His way of salvation more clear, and He continues to make it clearer every day as the gospel continues to be preached day in and day out. That's all I'm here to do to you, is to deliver this message again, the message that you have received And I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which has been preached to you. I make known to you the gospel which you received and in which you stand, the gospel that saves you. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was buried. Christ was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. After rising from the dead, from the dead, he appeared to Peter and then to all of his closest disciples. And then after that, as if that wasn't enough, he showed himself to more than 500 people at one time. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles again. Then he appeared to the apostle Paul. Now, all those witnesses have since died, but we have their testimony preserved for us in the Scriptures. And Jesus hasn't stopped making his presence known. He lives among his people in the power of his Holy Spirit. He is with us now as we worship him and gather in his name. And we can have confidence 
that if we put our faith in him, that he will carry us safely and that we can stand in the gospel. So hold fast to that message. Encourage each other in that message. And let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to take on our flesh, to die for our sins, to be buried, to bear our shame and our suffering, and then to be raised from the dead to demonstrate your power and your righteousness. Thank you for seating your son, Jesus Christ, at your right hand and for listening to our prayers through him. Father, we pray as we come to you um, in your table right now, in the table of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would wash us of our sins, that you would cleanse our consciences and confirm us in having our part in Christ Jesus. And would you please be with us as we go into our week, into our workplaces and our homes and to classes and wherever we go at school or elsewhere. We pray that you would help us to confess these realities of who Jesus is and what he has done and not be intimidated or timid, but strengthen us and empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.